The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Hello and welcome to Squawkbox. Here are your headlines today. Global equities stage a turnaround as investors brush off concerns in the Middle East, while U.S. bond yields slide after dovish Fed comments fuel speculation the tightening cycle is close to done. Hamas threatens to kill hostages as Israel orders a complete siege of the Gaza Strip, with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu vowing the campaign is just getting started. All of our enemies will know that it was a grave mistake to attack Israel. What we do to our enemies in the coming days will reverberate with them for generations. International condemnation pours in as Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky accuses Russia of trying to exploit the Israeli crisis. Ukraine's deputy central bank governor tells CNBC the West needs to band together. For the Western world uh, and for Ukraine together, it should be the joint, uh, joint goal, the victory of uh, Ukraine in this war and uh, making Ukrainian economy resistant to uh, future, future shocks. And the Chinese property giant in the country garden fails to repay an international loan. Succumbing to a liquidity crisis as it warns it's unlikely it'll be able to pay off all its remaining debt obligations. There's no doubt there was fallout from the Hamas militant attacks in Israel, and we saw that in various quarters of the market. European stock markets certainly showing those risk-off moves. And there were certain quarters of the market in particular, airline stocks, for instance, tanked. We saw oil prices spike, taking with them energy stocks and defence names back in focus as well, along with the safe haven bid that you saw in some of the yields across markets. So there were certainly various pockets of the market to watch yesterday. In terms of the overall market performance, we did see indices bounce. And again, there's been a very complex environment around the geopolitics, but the monetary policy side, we saw that focus again throughout the session yesterday's investors just picked up on some comments from Fed officials talking about the impact of long-term rates doing some of the job for the Fed when it comes to monetary tightening. So just a little bit of repositioning we saw yesterday on the markets. And don't forget it, it's another big week as we talk about CPI crossing, uh, the inflation numbers that the market will be watching closely. But uh, the overall pictures you can see, it was about six tenths plus on the S&P 500, one of the stronger signals that we got on markets. Second positive session for the big boards stateside. So we did get a bounce across the board. Modest levels for the Nasdaq. Let's just take a look at some of those stocks on the move, those big US defence and airline stocks. You can see Northrop uh, Grumman, that was up 11%, a big gains across the board too, right to Lockheed Martin, almost 9% in the green. But in the airline space, and we witnessed that in Europe as well, we did see a dip. And don't forget, flights have been impacted into the region, into the Middle East, into Tel Aviv and beyond. There are concerns around the oil price too, what that does to the pricing structure and the cost overheads for airlines globally. So at this stage, you could see it was a pullback 
spike in those major airlines to the tune of just over 4%. Now, I mentioned treasuries, and typically in moments like this with uncertainty, you do see a move into some of the safe havens, namely treasuries. The yield 4.64 will retreat from the 4.8 plus percent levels we witnessed last week. So uh, this is something we're watching closely. Whether that fade around the geopolitics now is going to stick with that U.S. yield curve or whether it is going to be proven to be fairly short-lived at this point because of some of the other funding pressures stateside. Let's take a look at the dollar. On the trade this morning, dollar is king. Sterling versus euro both on the back foot, down roughly a tenth of a percent. Dollar climbing versus the Japanese yen with 148.75. There's been some movement there off the 149 handle, as you can see, with 7.28 on dollar yuan rates. The big moves we saw in markets really around that oil price yesterday. Let's just take stock of where we sit this morning. We had a, a bounce of 4.3% on WTI as we closed out the session, 4.2 up on Brent. Giving back a little bit of that today, as you can see, modest moves to the into the red, about half of a percent coming off both. But the level 85.88 on WTI, 87.69 on Brent. The safe haven trade of gold was back in focus. We saw a bounce of a near on about 1% throughout the trading session. You could see at morning session, we're fairly flat up. We were 18.59 at this point. To the Asian markets, uh, picking up on that Wall Street trade, there's a lot of green across on some of these boards. Stocks in Tokyo in particular. Don't forget, we did see a lot of selling over the last four-week period. And uh, this is a market now that is looking for some gains. Energy-related stocks are, are certainly on the move in Japan as well. 760-plus points to the upside. Very strong push for stocks there. And in fact, uh, one of the better days we're seeing since about mid-January for the Tokyo stock market. One and a quarter percent higher for the Hong Kong market. Fairly decent gain in contrast to a slight dip on Chinese stocks. Australia firming up, really picking up on that Wall Street trade. So it very much is a mixed picture across the board as we weigh up the immediate reaction to the events in the Middle East. Yeah, absolutely. Look, and let, let's be brutally honest about it. Um, the world of finance and markets are divorced most of the time from the world of geopolitics. Um, throughout my entire career, which pretty much started officially at CNBC when I was covering 9-11 uh, and the horrendous events then as well, as well as the horrendous events that we're, we're experiencing uh, in the last three, four days. The fact of the matter is very rarely do geopolitical events at their inception actually affect the world of finance and economics and business. There is a, a ramification over a period of time if there is an expansion of that activity, if there is an elongation uh, of whether it's terrorist activity, whether it's conflict and what have you. So it's very important for our viewers to know there is nothing callous about markets rallying at this time. It is just that they are divorced and looking at a whole variety of factors rather than just, of course, what is the most horrendous story going yeah, on at the, the moment. The repricing of risk, I think, is what market participants have to do very, very quickly, yes. right? And the oil market was one where the immediate focus came into the mix. If there is a consequence here, if there's a link that's drawn with Iran, what that means in terms of any supply that could be removed from the market. And we saw, I think, a view taken around that, that the, the premium could go up a little bit from here. Uh, and whether that then has consequences for monetary policy, that was one of the very big yeah. links, wasn't it, in terms of early on yesterday? I think you're spot on. Um, and of course, um, the, the horrendous events in the Middle East continue. Uh, the death toll from the Israel-Hamas conflict has now risen to over 1,500 people as the militant group's surprise attack on Israel draws international condemnation. Israel's defense force has confirmed at least 900 Israelis have been killed, with at least 2,600 people injured. The Palestinian Ministry of Health has confirmed 687 people have been killed, with over 3,700 injured. Hamas is believed to be holding over 100 Israelis hostage, 
with the group now saying they will execute one hostage for every time Israeli forces target civilian homes without warning. Now, Israel's government has ordered a complete siege of the Hamas-controlled Gaza Strip. Israel's defense minister said electricity, food and fuel would be cut off from Gaza, a move that has drawn international condemnation. Israel has called up 300,000 reservists, raising concerns it will launch its first ground offensive into Gaza since 2014. The Israeli prime minister... Benjamin Netanyahu has called for a national unity government whilst warning of grave consequences for Hamas. The people are united and now the government needs to unite. I am calling on the leaders of the opposition to create a national unity government immediately, without precondition, as it was established with Menahem Begin on the eve of the Six-Day War. Dear Israeli citizens, we started and I emphasized, we have only started to strike Hamas. I know that we all want immediate results. It will take time, but I promise you, dear Israeli citizens, at the end of this campaign, all of our enemies will know that it was a grave mistake to attack Israel. What we do to our enemies in the coming days will reverberate with them for generations. Uh, Benjamin Netanyahu there. Let's get to Dan, who's going to update us uh, on events from uh, the region, of course. Uh, Dan joining us uh, out of the UAE. Dan. Steve Karen, good morning. Well, this conflict is now entering its fourth day and Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, you heard there, vowing to take revenge and retaliate after this Hamas attack, which has left now more than 1,500 people dead. A few updates to bring you across today. In terms of the latest, we're now hearing that Israel's military has claimed to re-establish control inside the country and says there have been no infiltrations in the last 24 hours. And that would seem to suggest that Israel's efforts on the Gaza border are now paying off, given the fact that it says there have been no infiltrations. At the same time, last night, Prime Minister Netanyahu also ordered a full siege of Gaza and pounded the area with airstrikes, while Hamas on the other side also threatened to start executing hostages if Israel bombs civilians in Gaza. What we know as well, according to the United States, is that 11 Americans have been killed in this conflict so far. The White House also believes it is highly likely that there will be Americans among those that have been kidnapped. And that is a significant situation for the White House and for President Biden. In the last few hours, we've also heard from the US Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, who has been speaking with his Israeli counterpart to lead on negotiations to get those possible hostages out of harm's way only in the last few hours. But of course, the situation is still very fluid and information is light on the ground. Also in the last 24 hours, we've learned that the Israeli Defense Forces have been starting to gather up to 300,000 troops. And this is, of course, remember everyday Israelis uh, who do their compulsory national service, who do their uh, training, those reservists, many of them young people, ahead of what is expected to be a ground operation into Gaza. But of course, that remains to be seen as well. So the situation still unfolding on the ground. You know, we've been tracking the equity and asset market reaction to this, but also the political fallout and implications. Right now, the focus is on the number of people that have been killed and the human toll that is now taking place as a result of this significant conflict in the Middle East. Dan, thank you very much for bringing us that coverage.
Meantime, the European Commission has announced it will launch an urgent review of its financial assistance to Palestine in the wake of Hamas's attack on Israel. The Commission said its target is to guarantee that no European funding indirectly supports any terrorist organisations. The IMF said it was too early to assess any economic impact stemming from the tensions in Israel. This as policymakers meet at the IMF World Bank annual meetings in Marrakesh. Oh, Jamana and Sylvia are on the ground. Jamana, Sylvia, no doubt the events unfolding in the Middle East and around these attacks by Hamas militants in Israel is just dominating conversations there. Yeah, absolutely, Karen, no doubt, because first and foremost, there's this concern that what's happening in Israel could actually bring further instability to the region, and then from a second point of view, that that could actually bring uh, essentially further challenges to the global economy. And with that in mind, I had the chance to speak to the Moroccan finance minister here yesterday, and she did say that this is essentially adding another layer to, of uncertainty to the global economy. Let's take a look. It's been a while that uh, we, we are really uh, living in a troubled world and a lot of headwinds. And of course, it, it represents an, another layer of uncertainty that hits economics, inflation, oil prices, etc. So how do we cope in Morocco with this? Uh, Morocco, uh, I would say, under the enlightened, uh, I would say, uh, uh, leadership of His Majesty, have chosen openness openness, culture openness, uh, religion openness, uh, and uh, economic openness. So we've been diversifying our economy, our partners, our education, and this is a, in our culture, in our roots, to say that we want to be a player in the global world. We, uh, we understand other culture, we, want, we can explain ours, and uh, I think it's the proper choice because it is one of the, I would say, the solution that helped us live in this difficult, uh, in difficult, I would say, uh, world of uh, the latest years. But from a, a financial point of view, obviously, because you're the finance minister, I just would like to understand what worries you the most, given how troubling the geopolitical situation is. Are you worried that? we're going to see higher oil prices and that that will impact inflation in Morocco. Of course, we are watching carefully and we, we saw that oil prices have already uh, risen. I think we know that we don't have any access to uh, fuel, I would say, uh, energy. And this is why we've been working for a while for the mid and long term uh, resources. So what we're doing in Morocco is long term renewable, competitive, clean energy. In the path of this, uh, this investment, we have up and downs, and we are coping with, with this because we know that sometimes we need to pay a higher pr a price for oil. It's difficult for us. It's a burden. Now, interesting comment there from the Moroccan finance minister in terms of how they're watching carefully what's happening in the oil market. She did say the higher oil prices would be a burden for the Moroccan economy. And of course, Romana, we cannot forget that they are also still dealing with the shocks of that earthquake. But having said that, she did mention that she doesn't expect any sort of strong impact on the fiscal position of Morocco this year, given the, the earthquake back in September? I mean, for me, I just see this as another shock that the world yeah. has to contend with. Um, it is absolutely horrible what is happening on the ground. And of course, it is dominating 
the discussions over here. We spoke about the economic impact yesterday. It's a little early to ascertain the exact impact it's going to have on the region. But, of course, the knock-on effects in terms of sentiment are going to be mm -hmm. something to watch as well. Many of the countries within the region look to that external financing. And in a situation where you've got rising interest rates, credit concerns, rising debt, questions about sustainability, and now a sentiment hit that's obviously going to raise a lot of questions for many of the countries within the region as well. I would say Morocco specifically is a very interesting case in point. Um, more recently, just after the effects of the earthquake, and this had been in motion for a while, they received a $1.3 billion resilience package from the IMF to help them deal with the longer-term challenges of climate change. Remember, this is a country that not only has experienced a devastating earthquake, uh, killing 3,000 people and affecting 60,000 families, but they're also year in, year out dealing with the effects of droughts yes. as well. And so it is very important from their perspective to get assistance on their climate and long-term initiatives. And this is where we get into the discussions, the deeper discussions this week within the IMF and World Bank. Later on, we're going to be speaking to the managing director of the World Bank. One of the most important questions we're going to be asking is, what can the World Bank do? How can their mandate be redefined to help those in most need, those countries that are in most need of that climate assistance? So I'm really looking forward to that interview. And of course, it is a major topic here on the sidelines of the conference. Guys. All right. Thank you very much indeed uh, from both of you and your coverage out of Marrakesh. OK, for all the latest news and developments in Israel and the Gaza Strip and, of course, the region, you can also follow our live blog. That is on CNBC.com. Well, coming up on the show, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer holds talks with Chinese President Xi Jinping in a rare congressional visit to the country. We'll have details next. Plus, Birkenstock prepares to unveil the pricing for its IPO amid reports of a $10 billion valuation. And we'll have more from Marrakesh at 8.30 CET when Jemana and Sylvia speak to Axel van Trotsenberg, that is the Senior Managing Director at the World Bank Group, that is a first on CNBC. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. Top U.S. Senate Democrat Chuck Schumer has called on China's President Xi Jinping to support Israel as it responds to attacks from Hamas. In a rare congressional visit to the country, Schumer also said the U.S. does not seek confrontation with China and does not want to decouple from the country. President Xi said the common interests of the United States and China far outweigh their differences. The China-U.S. ties are the most important bilateral relationship in the world. In the face of a world intertwined with changes and chaos, how China and the United States get along with each other will determine the future and destiny of mankind. As I have said many times, and with several US presidents before, we have a thousand reasons to develop US-China relations well, and not one single reason to make the relations bad. As two major countries, it is important that China and the United States demonstrate a broad mind, vision, and a sense of responsibility that befit their statuses to improve the well-being of the people in both countries and drive the progress of human society. I, I thought that was fascinating and I, I didn't know that um, 
Chuck Schumer was going to be. And I just want to put a little bit of context on this because what a journey. Because I, 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 I trawled something. It's, I can't remember what I did 10 minutes ago most, most of the time. But, I, but it was originally, I'm pretty sure, Chuck Schumer and Senator Graham as well, bipartisan, back in the middle of the first decade of this century, who tried to label China as a currency manipulator. So there's a lot of history uh, of Chuck Schumer and Congress looking at China and trying to force whichever administration it is at the time into a more proactive and aggressive economic stance against China. And of course, it's part of a longer legacy, which actually transcends, dare I say it, whether it's Obama or Trump or Biden. And that is the growing antagonism between China and US and the US on Chinese trade practices. And I just mm. thought it was very interesting. And just the optics of, uh, of Schumer there nodding as she's speaking. I think, well, maybe a Proshman is on the cards. And let's face it, we need a bit of good news at the moment. Well, this is a lockstep with what Valdis Dombrovskis was telling us the other week uh, yes. from Europe. I thought it'd be a slam dunk that he would say, look, Europe has a better position, better relationship with China at this point than the United States. But he was talking about how active the US is on the ground in China trying to repair relations. And I think the message has come through very loud and clear that if there is decoupling, then everybody loses. I think there's now a real concern in the administration about just how bad the relationship is and what it means for world growth at this point. Let's face it, growth is becoming even more challenging and we've got more geopolitics as well on top of that. Yes, but it's a twin track, isn't it? Rapprochement at one level, but at another level, let's reshore, let's get IRA to dollars to actually mean that we can catch up on a lot of um, very young industries which are going to be the future going forward, such as AI, such as EV, such as where we're going to get our rare earth materials from for the, for the next generation of products and electronics and what have you. So you're absolutely spot on. I, I hear what you're saying about um, rapprochement at one level and that it's a lose-lose, but at another level, there's just a little bit more cognizance, whether it's European and Dombrovskis, who was speaking to you as well, uh, and the US as well, that actually we need to just make sure that we're a little bit more insulated um, against... Chinese domination of certain industries and certain products. But that's been part of the problem. That narrative yeah. is very difficult to sell and keep a relationship, almost torch entire relationship based on how difficult the journey could be. In the meantime, let's just circle back to what is still a lurking issue in China, and this is around property development. The Chinese property giant Country Garden has missed an international debt payment. The developer was unable to repay a $60 million loan this morning. The firm has also said it does not expect to meet all of its other offshore debt obligations when they come due or within the grace periods. JP Ong joins us now with more from Singapore. JP, this has been a concern. The market is watching closely all of these payments. Just explain to us the significance today around the mispayment. Well, good morning, Karen. Uh, the real significance here might also be because Country Garden is now admitting that they might not be able to meet all of their offshore bond payment obligations. You mentioned their failure to meet that last tranche, actually, that last payment tranche a while ago. And in fact, it wasn't the, that the case, actually, when you take a look at how Country Garden shares actually did today. You, you did highlight the near 6% plunge, actually, in their stock today, intraday out in Hong Kong. It wasn't like that, though, because when the markets opened in Hong Kong, we actually saw Country Garden open with some gains. But it promptly gave those back just a little bit after Country Garden issued a, this very concerning statement on the Hong Kong exchange to address their outlook for bond payments. In the statement, I just want to read off of it for you folks. They did say something to the effect that the, while they have done everything in their power to try and make sure that they can meet these obligations and uh, undergo a, a strong debt restructuring, they said that the company also expects they will not be able to meet all their offshore bond payment obligations. In addition to that, what they highlighted was that such non-payment may lead to 
relevant creditors of the group demanding an acceleration of payment of the relevant indebtedness owed to them. Basically, what me this means is if they do default on certain of these bo certain bond payments, it might prompt some of their other bondholders to come back to Country Garden and say, well, wait a second, if you're not able to pay these tranches, I want more security that you're going to be able to pay some of the bonds and, and, and loans that we've extended to you via, via these bonds and thus might accelerate the demand of their creditors to try and make sure they can get paid sooner rather than later. But there are big question marks as to how much they can actually, if they can actually do that, because the bond pile or the loan pile that the country garden actually faces is quite immense. Take a look at this, almost $11 billion in offshore bonds that country garden has to, uh, has to account for, and about $5.81 billion in what they call non-Chinese yuan denominated bonds. How they're going to be able to account for that when sales of, uh, of, their, of their developments are also declining well, for, for the better part of this year meaning that they have less cash flow, they have less access to credit right now to fund some of their property developments. Keep in mind that they have over 3,000 developments across mainland China. And uh, when I spoke to Sam Vadas earlier on today, she did mention also that uh, they're mostly around the, sec the tier two and tier three cities out in mainland China, which means that if Country Garden does get go into indebtedness or does suddenly face a severe distress, this could actually impact some of the broader and smaller cities out in mainland China, which means that the economic impact of Country Garden's potential failure if it does get to that, might be even bigger or felt more widespread across mainland China. Back to you guys. Yeah, JP, absolutely relevant, isn't it? And, and anyone who thinks this Chinese crisis is over on the property front, the consumer, uh, they need to look at your coverage. Thank you, sir. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.